Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest is Aparna Nantrola. You've seen her on such shows as Conan and Last Comic Standing and as a writer and performer on Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. Over the summer of 2015, she recorded her first stand-up comedy CD and recently got a job as a writer on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Let's find out more about her. Aparna Nantrola, welcome back to Last Things First. Thank you. For our listeners at home or wherever you are, yes. uh, full disclosure, Aparna and I spoke a few months ago. We did. And Was it a few months ago? It it feels like just yesterday. Yes, it <laughs> truly does. But uh, it was before I had microphones or right. or this lovely uh, studio here, Showbird Studios. And, a, yeah, shoestrings and operation. We were plagued by technical and yes. operational difficulties. Situational <laughs> obstacles. So, uh, so let me start there. When you're doing a sh- when you're doing a stand-up show, mm-hmm. and there's technical difficulties yes. or, or people getting in the way or hecklers. What's the what's the first thing you you do in your head or on stage? Um, I think usually you acknowledge what's happening because there's always the option of just completely <laughs> pretending nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. So I think first and foremost, you just have to sort of acknowledge the situation and then, you know, address it in some way, either if it's a heckler, like engaging with them or if it's technical sort of like elaborating the situation for the audience because I think it's just that it, letting them know that you know you also are like yeah this is not how this is supposed to go so <laughs> right, let's not work supposed, through it there's not supposed to be a salsa band playing <laughs> right, upstairs right and usually just naming it I think it goes a long way okay yeah. what, what is What's the worst situation you've had, ever had to? Well, I actually, I don't know if this was the worst, but I I recently did an album taping and at the beginning of the first, I did two shows and the beginning of the first one, there was like cell phone interference or something. So the speakers kept making weird noises, okay. like right off the top. So I think I like had to start over again, like three times. Now, was it noticeable to you and everybody else or just noticeable to the people in the booth working the the controls? I think the people in the front could hear it more than, I don't know if the people in the back could hear it, but it was like noticeable enough that it couldn't just like be ignored. Okay. Yeah. And And the sound guy was saying, he was like, it's not the equipment. It's just people's cell phones are not in airplane mode. So it's creating like feedback. Oh. Yeah. But fortunately, you got through that, and then the second show was fine. Yeah, and then the second show, it wasn't an issue. Okay. Yeah. Now, at what point did you did you decide that you were ready to make a CD? Mm, I actually, I had had people sort of ask me. They were like, oh, have you ever thought about recording an album? And I had always sort of like put it aside in my head and shelved the idea just because it, I guess it's always, uh, there's always a way to justify that you're not ready or that like, you're like, I'll just wait a little longer. Like, I I don't know. I guess I've never been in a place where I'm like, oh, yeah, I have an hour that I just got to get down on, yeah, on permanently. <laughs> I think it's just like since stand-up is always kind of like an evolution process of like workshopping, 
there's never a really it never feels like there's an exact time to be like yeah this is when i need to record this so what do you make of of comedians who are still at the open mic level but are selling a cd i mean i i i applaud their initiative (laughs) (laughs) i think it's so easy to make one now i guess it is yeah and and i i guess even on some level to put it out like you can kind of just like get it on iTunes or whatever. Right, you can record one on your iPhone and then yeah. put it on iTunes and SoundCloud and right. be like, okay, I've got an album. So there is like a DIY element that hasn't been there before, but I think personally, like as an artist, you just have to, it's good to know why you're putting an album out and like what, what it, like what the purpose of it is for you, I think. Rather than to just be like, oh, everyone puts out an album. This is mm-hmm. what you do. Like to just have a little bit of thought behind it. So what does this mean for you personally and professionally to to be putting out an album? I mean, for me, I think because it is like I, I, I tend to operate in gray areas where I'm like, oh, I guess this material is done and I'll move on to something else. But an album is a good way, at least in your mind to punctuate your work and sort of be like, okay, now I can sort of shelve this material and then kind of explore new territory. So it does provide that kind of closure that you don't always get as an artist where you kind of have to set your own goals and deadlines. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, since the last time we spoke, you have new territory and new goals and deadlines. You have a job at Late Night with Seth Meyers. That's right. That's right. How was that? Was that something that that you were aiming for from the time that you left? Uh, totally biased. I believe I. You're like I need to be on another show. Well, I do believe like the timing was actually kind of funny because I think as like right after Totally Biased ended, Seth Meyers started. Like that was how it worked out. But you're not blaming Seth Meyers. No, I don't think it. I don't think the two events are related. (laughs) But that's how it worked out. Um, Yeah, like Kamau and Seth. Oh, huge feud. But um, no, I think it it just worked out that way. And then I had applied for that show just because I had just like been like out of a job recently, and then. I yeah and then I hadn't I don't think I'd reapplied I think they maybe had another round of looking for a writer like a couple months months ago but I hadn't like resubmitted or anything so then it kind of like just like popped up on my radar as like I think maybe I'd just been in their hip pocket or something so it wasn't like something I even knew was on the horizon (laughs) Really? Like, I had thought about it before, but then it hadn't been, like, recently on my radar. Okay. Yeah. So what's your first day, what was your first day at work like? Is it, like, a a typical first day at an office job where you spend half the day filling out HR paperwork and getting a tour? A little bit, but because it's, like, a daily topical show, there's a pretty fast, I mean, a relatively fast-paced production cycle, so you're... Like, there isn't a lot of time to just be like, oh, this is your new day. Let's just let you get situated. (laughs) Like, you kind of, like, you kind of jump into things. And, like, they, like, I'm starting in monologues. So that is, like, just a process of writing pages of jokes and turning them in at various times throughout the day. So there isn't really a, like, downtime within that. So even that first day, were you expected to be... Yeah. Filing a hundred jokes or how many jokes were you, how many jokes did they expect that first day? 
the well the other writers were sort of good about being like okay so for each round this is about how many you should be turning in Mm -hmm. so i tried to aim for you know the what they asked for Mm in the first day like i wasn't like oh well first day so i can just cut that in half like i was like might as well get used to what is expected now how how would you how would you compare writing for seth and his voice to writing for for kamau um, I think it's different because they both sort of have different agendas mm-hmm. in that Totally Biased was a lot more like overtly political and like social justice oriented and wanting to take a firm stance on certain issues. And I think Seth Meyers isn't necessarily that same angle of approaching things where it's like he definitely is like very... Um, smart and like up up to speed on like politics and like the upcoming election and right. like happy to comment on that stuff but I think it's not as much like uh, we're gonna take a soapbox on this specific issue. Well his monologue process also took a a, yes. a, a, a big yeah. shift right about the time that you started working I think there. like literally when I started, he was trying a new thing that day. Right, where he goes straight to the desk. Yeah. Which and does he had more him. of his weekend update style with graphics and right. and all that instead of a typical monologue where you're standing. Which I didn't realize is page. like, and some of the other people there were saying is like, we didn't realize how much it would rock in the late <laughs> night world. <laughs> Right, people people noticed the very. I noticed the first day, but I was surprised too that oh, okay. that everybody else noticed, and then it was it was on all the websites and yeah, like <laughs> it was like a news item, and yeah. it was like oh, people are really shocked by this sitting thing. Yeah, so would you? <laughs> it's shocking. Yeah, does does that change your your writing process at all? Knowing that it's it's going to have graphics and. I think for me, since I came in when it started, it's mm-hmm. harder for me to see the shift because I wasn't there right. when, before. But I think for, I think we did sort of go over how it's a slightly different style, and when you're standing, there aren't really like graphics to play off of. Okay. And when you're sitting, you have that element that's different, and I think sort of. Even the riffing process is a little different standing versus sitting, like just as a news desk versus sort of a more stand-up feel. Right. Yeah. So there are definitely tweaks, but I think for me, it's just getting the overall tone, period. Yeah. And when you were growing up in Northern Virginia, is this is this what you pictured your your life would be like? No. I think, I think for me, that's been the biggest thing with comedy where I... I don't think I'm someone who often has like a five-year plan in mind. So in a lot of ways, like I sort of just have gone with the flow of where things have taken me Okay. and like open myself up to opportunities in like applying to things and like, you know, taking things as they come, but not really, not necessarily always seeking them out explicitly on my own. Was going with the flow a, a part of your life philosophy from, from childhood or did that I don't know if it's like more Did that I have trouble making decisions and you're I'm easily like, swayed. Yeah. And I'm just like, well, I'll just see what happens and then do that. Okay. Well, did you grow up uh, inside the Beltway or outside the Beltway? Oh my gosh. It's really embarrassing that I don't even know. 
I know those terms and right. then I'm and then the fact that I've never actually thought about which one I am. I think I'm outside the beltway. Okay. Wait. <laughs> I think is inside the beltway DC. But it's DC plus oh, I, I believe it refers to the to the highway that loops around. I know. Am I inside that? Yeah. I might when be. When you picture your your family and you're, I think actually you're my, traveling to, to see them. <laughs> I think my parents also moved after I, after like my sister and I left the house. Like okay. they recently moved to an apartment and now they are definitely inside the beltway. But I'm like, before, were we outside right. the beltway? Hmm. Maybe. Well, I ask because <laughs> I, I know my vision of it is that if you're, if you're literally inside the beltway, yeah. that there's a, a real pull toward everything political and everything that's going on uh, in the yes. capital. But but as someone who started comedy in DC, that it's it that doesn't trickle down into the comedy scene, at least not for stand up. Like there wasn't a lot of political stand up in DC. I think people almost were like, "There's enough of that. You guys want it? Let's talk about other stuff." I, I guess I'm I'm thinking even before you decide comedy, oh, that you're okay. thinking, "Oh, I'm, I've got to be part of this process, whether it's mm. being in politics or going into." A, lobbying oh, or the law to be some part of the process no <laughs> no you're just like oh this is all happening here i guess i don't know why i think I it's was not a company like... it's not that much of a company town right where you're like oh i guess i gotta work for the company i feel like I all the have to pe- work for the government a lot of people who go into politics are often not from dc it's mm. all it's like a very transient city where there are a lot of people there temporarily they're doing you know like working for Congress or like working for the World Bank or like doing lobbyist stuff or um, yeah and like lots of nonprofit work and I think that people who grow up around there it's almost like not everyone but for them for the most part a lot of us just tuned it out a little bit because it's just such a common you know it's like c-span is always on so we were just like eh, it's there right yeah you had told me you were more interested uh when you were younger in in creative writing yeah what kind of what kind of things were you writing poems or short oh, stories yeah, poems short stories like i kept a journal for you know most of my childhood and it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of like little girl like cliches of like horses and dogs were main characters. Not unicorns and princesses. Oh, horses oh, and dogs. that's true. Maybe it's slightly, <laughs> uh, slightly off brand. So you... Slightly off brand, but yeah, a lot of animal stuff. A lot of like sort of fantasy element of like mag- magical worlds mm-hmm. and things. Well, would you would you uh, classify your comedy as slightly off brand? Yeah, I mean slightly off brand. It's on brand for me, but it is slightly <laughs> off brand for, I think, what people expect from me. What do you think people expect from you? I think just in, in terms of, like, if you're being lowest common denominator, mm-hmm. reading a stand-up by, like, what they look like or where they grew up, it's like, I don't really talk about, like, being, growing up as, like, with, like, immigrant parents or, like, growing up Indian, like, that doesn't inform my act as much as I think sometimes people would expect when I started now I feel like I've been around long enough that people don't they're not like immediately like oh you're gonna talk about these things right like they know that I sort of don't but I think when I started there it was a little bit more like why don't you talk about your culture and stuff now you you started at at an open mic but but you had Mm -hmm. told me when we talked this summer 
that you and your friends already were attending this open mic. We were, yes. Which astounds me because most comedians, when they think of open mics, don't think of audience members being there. Yeah. They think it's, oh, it's just full of comics and people who accidentally yeah, found I, a comedy show happening around them. I always wonder if that is a, like a more New York, L.A. trope of mm-hmm. like open mics are known to just be comics for comics. But I feel like in D.C. and definitely other cities I visited, like there are open mics where there is a, a regular audience. And I don't know if they're I don't think they're billed really as they're kind of billed like little shows almost. Okay. And then it's like it is an open mic, though, but the it is like basically like a new york bar show where it's like you know there's it's not necessarily a lottery like you you the order is decided beforehand Mm -hmm. you know how much time you're doing and then you get up and do your time but how did you and your friends decide to start going to this before you decided to perform on it i think we were just looking for cheap forms of hanging out and entertainment as like broke college students (laughs) (laughs) so we're like oh this we can go hang out at this like kind of divey hotel bar and watch comedy while we're there so it was it was a comedy open mic it wasn't oh yes it was a comedy open mic with poets and people i mean it was honestly like a b playing acoustic guitar and i think like a b room club where they would do like open mic night during the week and then the weekend would be like you know a headliner and this was in dc it was in northern virginia okay inside the belt <laughs> <laughs> i don't know so much beltway I talk how, how it was many, right off the beltway how many times did you did you go to this show before it dawned on you that you should be up there I think we went at least like three times and I think maybe the second or third time my friend and I were like, we should try it. Like we, we had like watched, you know, two nights of it and we we're like, you know, there was a range of levels. So mm-hmm. it didn't feel as scary. I think when we first went, we were like, oh, it's going to be people who all know what they're doing. And then we saw that wasn't necessarily the case. And my other friend, Dave, he was like already interested in comedy stuff. I think I was like knew I was interested in it but had never really pursued it in any way so I was like this might be my chance okay yeah and what did you what did you talk about that first time it was I remember I talked about public restrooms (laughs) are you for them or against them (laughs) finally someone tackles (laughs) this very nuanced subject um Mm. I think it was just like anecdotes about okay I think it was against um, (laughs) for the most part. And then like I had like three summer jobs and I was like living with my parents. So I think I talked about those jobs and like living at home. So how did you have three summer jobs? Um, They were all like part time. Okay, I worked at the mall. I was like a assistant counselor for like this summer camp. And then and then I worked at a different store at the mall. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but both both mall jobs were at the same mall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did, yeah. did they know you were you were double timing? I, I worried job? about that, but then I was like, oh, I'll just you know I'll give them opposite availability schedules. Was there a costume change? I mean, there's a uniform for both. For both, sort so you of, had to. Yeah. Did you change in like the food court or a public <laughs> restroom? Did you change in a public restroom? See, there was a link to okay. everything. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You know, all of those jobs are actually dealing with audiences. The I know. The counselor job and the 
retail mall jobs. That's true. I mean, it's really, it, it. I feel like most jobs on some level you're dealing with like people or there is some opportunity where you have to like address a group of people. Like oh. I don't think, I feel like there's rarely a job where you're not interacting with. Even if you're in a cubicle, you're still... I mean, I feel like even in cubicles, you're your doing like, you know, phone stuff mm -hmm. and, or like, then you have like meetings. Like there's never, I feel like I don't, I have never had a job where you're completely isolated and don't have to like interact at all with other people. The the summer jobs you had, did you, did you use those interactions with your customers or, or the counselors? Yeah, As, I think I think that was like some of my material was about like kid behavior because mm -hmm. it was from being a counselor, and then and then I think I did something on dressing rooms. But when you were actually working the job, yeah. did you did you deal with these people comedically? Oh no, no. <laughs> I was like, like, yeah, no, no. I'll like, be talking about you later. No, I feel like <laughs> I'm not going to deal with this yeah, now. I feel like even now people are like so weird you're a comedian because you're so like not <laughs> like that right now and i'm like okay well yeah i guess not everyone's like their job outside of their job well not everybody is not every comedian is on all the time right that to me doesn't feel like a requirement what <laughs> what what inspired you to 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 flip that switch though and in Go from being an introvert, kind of oh. quiet person in life to being I mean, a funny person on stage. It wasn't like, like performing wasn't totally new to me in that I had like grown up doing like dance and like some theater in like middle school and elementary okay. school. And then um, my mom made me like take a public speaking class when I was really little because she was like afraid I was too shy. So I like, weirdly enough, I was like, more comfortable speaking in front of big groups than like one-on-one -on -one or like in small groups, if that makes sense. Like, like presenting to me felt like a more comfortable than like, just like cold calling someone. So when you told your parents you were going to be a stand-up comedian, did they yeah. go, ah, we prepared you. <laughs> I think they were kind of like, okay, <laughs> like, what is that? And <laughs> when was the first time they ever saw you perform? I think probably within a few months of me starting, maybe like six months in, maybe okay. a year in. Like it was the first, it was like one of the first shows I did that wasn't like an open mic. Okay. Yeah. And where was that? I, I want to say it was like a DC improv, like local comedy competition, okay. but it's possible they saw me before that. But I know that was like one of the first times they saw me. And then you also did improv. Yes. How 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 long had you been doing stand up when you decided to do improv? I think I had been doing I think I started stand up like regularly pursuing it in like a I want to say February or like winter and then I started improv that summer. Okay. Yeah. And it was short form or long form? Long form. It was like Washington Improv Theater which primarily did long form at the time. Okay. Yeah. Are there any people who you perform with there that people would know? I think so. Like Rory Scoville performed there and he was like the stand up in D.C. right at that time who was like a really big advocate of improv. And I feel like a lot of stand ups took improv because he encouraged it so much and spoke so highly about it. 
And so he performed there and then a bunch of other people also now live in New York who were performers there, like Natasha Rothwell, who, um, yeah, she, I think, just wrote for SNL. Yeah, she did last season, yeah. Yeah, and um, Dan Hodap, he performs oh, at Dan. UCB yeah. in the pit. And just a lot of people, Zubin Parang, who writes for The Daily Show, but I think we kind of, like, he had already moved when I started there, but he he also like came up through there and like yeah there's like a ton of people zach phillips there's like a bunch karen hammerberg it's almost as if dc has a real comedy scene yeah <laughs> i would say that <laughs> how, how did how did how did performing improv with those people uh influence your stand-up i think it i think the main thing that is great about improv is it just like it makes you more comfortable with being in the moment and being able to go off script. And I tend to be like pretty control heavy sometimes with my writing. So mm. it's like good at kind of loosening that rigidity and making you okay with not always knowing what you're going to say until you were there. Right, to be, yeah. in, to be in the flow. Yeah, and some people I think weave it a lot more organically into their stand-up. Like Rory is someone who I feel like seamlessly kind of blends the two and I don't feel like I necessarily have translated it that organically but I feel like the skills I've learned from it are really really helpful yeah okay yeah and then you decided you're in New York now working for for Seth Mm -hmm. but you had moved to LA first yes what what was your first experience with with the LA comedy scene after moving out there Mm, I I would say I knew like a couple people, but for the most part, it was kind of like starting over, like where I just had to like go to open mics and just go to shows and hang out and be like, this is who I am. This is what I've done. And like, you know, kind of just like have people learn who I was. And I think, yeah, I think that's the scary part about anyone's first big move for a comedy where it's just like, oh, you kind of like any work you did before is kind of cut in half or like cutting a third and you have to start over did you know that going in i think i knew it to some degree like i feel like there were people in dc who were sort of like always like okay i'm gonna move i'm gonna move but then didn't move so mm-hmm. i think in a way that sort of what made me like no i've got to try it like it, even if it's gonna be hard i have to try where where was the first place that that made you feel comfortable in la there was one of the first shows I did there that I remember was like so fun was this show at like Akbar. It's Akbar. like a, yeah, it's like a little gay bar in like Silver Lake and it's run by like Aaron Foley and Bruce Daniels. Okay. I think they discontinued it. Like I think someone else runs it now, but it's just like this Tuesday night like cozy vibe show where like a lot of people just like work out stuff and the audience is very warm and I think that was like oh, good, there are places here that will be good and, like, comfortable. Okay, and then you moved to New York for Totally Biased? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And are you still, you're hosting Whiplash? Yes. Uh, I think Leo is kind of um, indefinitely in L.A., so Mm -hmm. just, like, while he's gone, I, I, you know, working with my schedule, I try to fill in whenever I can. Okay. Yeah. How would you describe uh, Whiplash is the Monday night free comedy show at the UCB Theater. How would you describe it to people who haven't been there? I would say it's like, I mean, it's a very long running underground 
comedy show and i feel like it's changed hands maybe twice like i think aziz originally ran it with like paul Shear, and it was crash test right and then leo ran it was whiplash but i think it's always been known as sort of like just this late night monday hot crowd show where where it's like you know a lot of acts that sometimes are like alternative but now i feel like it's a real mix of just people you should know on the new york scene and 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 then you know big name drop-ins and then just like visitors from out of town who are who are working on something and are you know either you've heard of them or you should know of them what do you tell someone who's big a big name drop-in who is their first time there do you tell them anything beforehand or do you oh, let jeremy do interesting. that interesting i think Je- i mean jeremy books it so he usually has the most interaction with mm-hmm. with the acts um beforehand so i don't know if he tells them anything but usually they usually if they come and they see the crowd they're like okay i can tell this will be fun or sometimes you can just see them discovering for themselves where they'll like really have fun during their set and you're like oh good they've like because you i i guess as a host you always you just want them to like have a good time and be appreciated for what they do um is that the most important thing to to remember as a host of a comedy show comedy that, showcase? I think every host probably has their own philosophy. I'm not a big like my thing is like it the show is not about me. Like I'm I more want to make the acts look good. And cuz I feel like that's what people are there for, so I'm not like someone who does like a ton of time between acts or even mm-hmm. sometimes I just won't do any because I'm like, it's a late Monday night, and if anyone wants to go long, I would rather they go long. Like, I don't need to belabor my <laughs> joke they've heard seven times. Oh, don't sell yourself short, though. <laughs> well, I, mean, I use the time I use the time at the top okay. to, like, play around <laughs> and, like, do different, try different things. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, like, once the show's going, I sort of like to let it follow its own momentum. Okay. Yeah. What's the, what's the last great bit of advice you've received? Hmm... I think, honestly, like, I feel like I'm in a weird place right now where I'm really big on, like, failure and taking risks. So I like it. Yeah. So I think, like, I think to me it's just remembering as a stand-up that, like, um, at least where I'm at right now, it's like bombing is just as important as doing well sometimes in terms of, like, pushing your comfort zone and finding new things to talk about that might not feel you know, familiar right away to you, but it's like the only way to sort of like get into that new territory is to like push through the, the feelings where you're like, Oh no, this isn't working. This isn't right. And like, that's how you sort of get to the new place. Mm, Yeah. You have to work through it. Yeah. Go with the flow. Yeah. Now you also, uh, I know I'm catching you just, just after you had, you went to was it Philadelphia or yeah yesterday and you gave a seminar to young <laughs> young would be you comedians know that? you're really uh, caught up to speed <laughs> well I also ask a lot of comedians like what they tell right aspiring comedians and you just had this experience I mean I, a seminar I, I was kind yesterday. of going off of what I talked about in the seminar yesterday I think I told them bombing is important like so many times they mm-hmm. were probably like. <laughs> Does this woman ever not bomb? <laughs> but I think I I did. I mean, I feel like a lot of times with with comedy seminars, you know, people are like, "How do I do this?" And mm-hmm. it is like 
to me at least it feels like there isn't like one one form answer for a lot of those questions where it's like it is your it is a process of trial and error of finding what works for you on stage and there isn't like this is the one way you do you you segue this is the one way you do this so I think a lot of my questions were sort of like or my answers were kind of like vague in that I was like you gotta find what works for you so it is a lot of that I mean the main thing I wish it wasn't always the same answer but the main thing with stand-up that that I think a lot of comics tell people is like you just have to do it like Mm -hmm. there's no I can't give you a but you did encourage them to do it you didn't tell them no don't no don't do it this is a horrible well I was like do it we have too many comedians I was like do do it and definitely bring to it what you want to like don't look at what you see now and be like this is the only way to do comedy like if you have like some idea for like a character or like some way you want to attack it like try everything before you dismiss it yeah well aparna thank you for not dismissing me oh yeah oh, good taking, segue. Taking, taking a second chance on doing yeah, this podcast yeah. i think we got it this time oh thank gosh <laughs> <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.